Oh dear, not more programs about the Rite of Spring. It seems people never stop talking about this all too chewed over piece of early 20th century music. After all, it's just a ballet score, not very long even, a little over half an hour. How could such a piece be so important? The fuss began, of course, with the famous scandal at the first staging in Paris in 1913. Though nowadays we're told that had more to do with Nijinsky's strange choreography than with the music, which was apparently almost inaudible under the catcalls. But the serious discussion and argument really took off a year later, after the triumphant first concert performance, at the end of which Stravinsky claimed he was carried out on the shoulders of the audience. Since then, everyone imaginable has had their say. For a long time, the main bone of contention was naturally enough whether the right was any good or not. Nowadays, that's hardly discussed. It's become a sacred cow of Western culture, like Beethoven's Fifth or the Mona Lisa. That's one reason why it's a difficult piece to say anything new about. But there's also another reason. Over the last 30 or 40 years, there's been a vast amount of scholarly research around this ballet, and one of the effects of that is that anything you say is almost bound to be contradicted by someone else. Never mind, here goes. The Rite of Spring is in two halves, and the second half, the Sacrifice, or the Great Sacrifice as it was originally called, is perhaps musically the most revolutionary part of the piece, and I'll be looking at that in next week's programme. Today, I want to concentrate on the first half, the adoration of the earth, or, as it was originally called, the kiss of the earth. For anyone intrigued by the Rite of Spring, one of the most fascinating things that modern scholars have revealed is the number of different ways Stravinsky found to write the rite by borrowing from different kinds of folk music. Even 90 years ago, most listeners realized this piece was trying to sound like some kind of ancient peasant ritual. Its subtitle, after all, is Pictures from Pagan Russia but they didn't realize that Stravinsky was actually using real folk melodies. And that's because he changed those melodies in fascinating ways. Take that opening. Stravinsky found it in a book not of Russian, but of Lithuanian folk songs. Apparently, he was interested in Lithuanian tunes because in his day they were thought to be especially ancient. Here's the original. What a distance Stravinsky travelled from that to this. 
By pulling the rhythm around, adding twiddles or grace notes, and using the uncomfortably high top register of a solo bassoon, Stravinsky transformed the original Lithuanian tune from a simple dancing song in three-time to what sounds far more exotic, like an improvisation on a folk instrument of some sort. In fact, Stravinsky had a particular folk instrument in mind. In the printed score, this section simply marked introduction, but in his original notes, he called it dudki. A dudka in Russian is a kind of village pipe. They come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, but here's a couple of them recorded in southern Russia about 30 years ago. The noise in the background, by the way, is someone beating time on the blade of a scythe. Stravinsky calls his introduction dudki, pipes, in the plural, because very soon all sorts of other pipes start joining in underneath his lonely solo bassoon, a whole collection of clarinets, for example. And these are soon interrupted by another pipe, a core anglais, a kind of large oboe. Underneath that, three bassoons. and three bassoons. That makes four. Here's a real group of four folk pipers, also recorded in southern Russia. The buzzing, whining sound on the top there is a jaleka, a reed pipe usually made from cow horn or birch bark. And how incredibly close that real folk music sounds to this passage in The Rite of Spring. Within a few bars, more and more pipes start joining in. Flutes, an oboe, clarinets again. And what's happening here from the point of view of the drama? The first thing the music suggests is a more or less chaotic procession of village musicians, getting nearer and nearer, perhaps, and with each villager playing their own music on their own pipe. Mm -hmm. 
But did you notice those little hints of a different, even more ancient kind of music? Birdsong, a dawn chorus, pipes and birds blending seamlessly into one another. Man and nature, the music proposes, are one and the same. Layer upon layer of sound, Stravinsky described this as a swarm of spring pipes. Listen to some of the bees in that swarm on their own, and you get a tremendous sense of the mastery of the young composer's orchestral technique, and of the fascination of the connections he's making between folk music and natural music, birdsong, and even sometimes animal cries and insect noises as well. First, two piccolos with a flute and a clarinet. And here's another flute and a clarinet and two oboes. And piercing through them, another couple of clarinets. There's a fascinating combination of an oboe and a piccolo trumpet. And there are all kinds of rumbling sounds in the lower woodwind, like this bass clarinet. and the bassoons and contrabassoons with a single double bass. I bet you didn't know that was going on underneath all the other sounds. And there are other stringed instruments in the mixture too, like these violas and the strange trilling of a solitary solo violin. In fact, the strings as a whole here are making a kind of cushion of sound, like the sound of wind or water in the background. Against that background, the pipes and bird songs can flicker and cry.
Stravinsky's collaborator on the Rite of Spring was Nicholas Rurich. Rurich was a strange man. He later ended up living as a sort of mystic in India. But in those days, he was a supposed expert on the archaeology and anthropology of the ancient Slavs. It was thanks to him that both the story and the production were crammed full of real details from ancient customs and rituals. Stravinsky's job was to respond by writing music to match. Rurik wrote about this first half of the ballet, the adoration or the kiss of the earth. It transports us to the foot of a sacred hill, amid green fields where Slavonic tribes have gathered for their spring games. There's also an old sorceress who performs auguries, a game of wife abduction, a game of cities and of charavods. And finally, the most important person arrives. From the village is brought the oldest and wisest man to plant his sacred kiss upon the flowering earth. The first of these highly contrasted games and episodes, the Orgies of Spring, was originally called Divination with Wands. According to an article published in a magazine on the very day of the ballet's first performance, in this scene, a very old woman who knows the secrets of nature is teaching her sons the art of divination. The boys at her side are the Orgies of Spring, who mark with their steps, standing in one place, the rhythm of spring, spring's beating pulse. It's rightly said that although we can now see that there are maybe hundreds of folk borrowings in the Rite of Spring, we'll probably never know where Stravinsky got most of them from. There are quite simply too many, and he's cut them down and manipulated them in so many different ways. But it's perhaps not the folk borrowings that are the most famous aspect of this particular dance from the ballet, the Orgies of Spring. Here, it's above all the rhythm and the harmony that astonish. Take the rhythm first. Those instantly recognisable offbeat chords still electrify 90 years after they were composed. But take away the pulsing strings, those village boys stamping the ground, and listen to the eight horns on their own.
The whole idea is completely different. You immediately feel that the distinctively Stravinskyan asymmetrical rhythm only exists in relation to a pulse, that famous beating pulse of spring. And what about the harmony? The most obvious thing is that this notorious discord is actually made up of two very ordinary common chords. Just put on top of one another. Once Stravinsky found this chord, he held onto it like a terrier. The pulsing strings and offbeat horns are answered by a corps anglais. Underpinned by bassoons and cellos. And still it's the same chord, and although he does change its structure every once in a while, Stravinsky refuses to move away from it. This, of course, is another part of the great shock this ballet caused when it first appeared. To use an old phrase, for much of the time, this music doesn't go anywhere. It simply stays thumping on one spot, like those boys thumping with their feet on stage. There's no development or transition, nothing of the kinds of process or story loved by both the classical and romantic composers. Instead, Stravinsky makes drama and confrontation by cutting and juxtaposing, sometimes by placing ideas on top of one another, or by simply and abruptly following one thing with another. So, as the boys, the orgies of spring, beat the pulse while the very old woman practices her divination with wands, the adolescent girls come up from the river. That magazine description, published on the morning of the first performance, goes into detail here. The girls form a circle that mixes with the boys' circle. They are not wholly formed beings. Their sex is single and double like that of a tree. They mix. So, that spring song of the newly arrived girls... is underpinned by the continuing stomping of the boys. And these two worlds, the boys and the girls, are held together by a kind of trembling. And over the top of this already complicated texture, a new swinging, almost processional theme enters in the trumpets and cellos.
This is a marvellous example of the kind of distilling of folk sources that's so characteristic of this ballet. Stravinsky may or may not have got this tune from somewhere else. There is, in fact, a well-known Russian folk tune that sounds quite similar. But whatever his original source was, he's altered it, mostly by compressing it and by slowing it down. In village music, a dance tune of this kind would normally be a whole lot faster. And slowing this tune down, Stravinsky achieves two things. He gives the music a grandeur, suggesting something mythic and solemn and religious, almost like old Russian church music. And he also forces us to listen to the tiny elements of which this tune's made up, elements which are themselves almost genetically implanted in most of the folk music he knew, like the simple dance rhythm which he just keeps repeating, or the fact that the tune is doubled in thirds. And last, but not least, there's the fact that this tune just keeps going up and down a simple four-note scale. And this tiny scale, which is very common not only in Russian but in non-Russian folk music, is to be found, like that doubling in thirds we just heard, almost everywhere in the Rite of Spring, very often in parts of the orchestra that we can hardly hear because there's so much going on. increasingly complicated combination of these layers were clearly intended to sense some kind of coming explosion of energy. And that's exactly what happens with what Stravinsky called the game of abduction. The game is one where the boys are chasing and trying to seize and carry off the girls of their choice. And it explodes with terrifying violence out of the swirling dance at the end of the divination scene. What an extraordinary sound the opening of this second episode is. So extraordinary that we might not even notice that the harmony is yet another version of the stomping chord that opened the previous scene. Where the Orgies of Spring begins with this chord, the game of abduction begins with this. The upper part of that chord is scored for four trumpets with violas in the middle of the texture, and the lower part of the chord is played by four horns with cellos and basses on the first beat to give the explosion of sound real punch at the beginning.
And on top of that, Stravinsky makes the chord gleam with an almost blinding light by adding frantic violins. And over the top of that whole texture, here once again is another of those Lithuanian tunes that Stravinsky liked so much. That's in two time. Stravinsky makes it his own by turning it into three time. After the wild energy of the game of abduction, the calm of the ballet's opening returns again. There's yet another Lithuanian folk tune, and once more we hear those pipes, the dudki, with two clarinets, piccolo and bass, two octaves apart, and four flutes trilling in the background. This little moment of quiet, Stravinsky in his notes calls an incantation, and it marks the beginning of the first of the several Chravod numbers in this ballet, the so-called spring rounds. Chravodi are the most famous of Russian country dances. They're usually depicted as going round in circles, but they don't have to do that. Sometimes they go in lines, or they weave in and out of one another. The important thing is that everyone sings and moves together. It's a real communal dance. And the tunes Stravinsky uses here are instantly recognizable from the previous two numbers. There's a version of the Lithuanian tune from the Game of Abduction. And a version of that Russian tune in thirds from the Augurs of Spring.
and that almost immediately reinvents itself with overpowering force in the full orchestra. The sound is so heavy here that it's almost as though the charavod were grinding to a halt. But instead, we get one of Stravinsky's wonderful jump cuts, the sudden reappearance of the tumult of the game of abduction. Here again, there are clear connections with what we've already heard. The passage starts with yet another very expanded version of the stomping chord from the Augurs of Spring. That's followed by this by now familiar shape. Stravinsky repeats that idea. And then does so again, but this time with added swirling woodwind figures above. Then we get the stomping chord again. Then one more Lithuanian swirl. And then the stomps let fly. That's a wonderfully clear example of Stravinsky not developing or transforming in a narrative way, but generating colossal energy by cutting backwards and forwards between different ideas. Ideas which, by this stage in the ballet, we've already heard quite a lot, so the ear is quick to pick them out. The next scene is the one rather puzzlingly known as the game of rival cities. Here again, modern scholarship can help. It seems that these cities were shapes like rings or walls made by the dancers which the other dancers had somehow to break through. In fact, the actual dances themselves were sometimes called cities. So, after the orgias, the abduction and the spring charavods, we're still in the same world of very young men and women dancing together in a whole range of different traditional patterns. 
And notice again how Stravinsky works, just cutting and chopping and changing and swinging backwards and forwards between a handful of short ideas, with the stomping chord and the curl of the Lithuanian tune and the swinging Russian tune in thirds, everywhere to be found. And there's a wonderful orchestral colour we've not heard before, combining the sound of two tubers and two Wagner tubers, a lighter and more mellow version of the more usual bass variety. Together, they make a colour that's rich and warm, not piercing or harsh, but which still manages to cut right through the thunder of the rest of the orchestra with this eerie, almost priestly chant. And Stravinsky carries this chant straight on, seamlessly, into the next section, the procession of the sage. In fact, in a concert performance, it's almost impossible to tell where the game of cities ends and the procession begins. A group of young people are bringing the oldest and wisest man from the village to the green fields at the foot of the sacred hill, so that he may bless the earth.
Now that's a really amazing passage, even by the standards of this extraordinary work. In his original outline of the ballet, Stravinsky gave this passage the name "Idut Vidut," which could perhaps best be translated as "They're coming, they're coming," and it's also one of those passages, and there are several of them in the Rite of Spring, where you can really hear Stravinsky's debt to the 19th-century Russian composer Mussorgsky, and especially to Mussorgsky's opera Boris Godunov and its famous coronation bells. In the ballet, the oldest and wisest man is brought by the young people to the holy place. He bends down and kisses the earth. And immediately, the whole company erupts into the finale of the first half of this ballet, one of the glories of the whole score, the Dance of the Earth, or, as its slightly more complicated original Russian title has it, the Dancing Out of the Earth. Once again, you can hear Stravinsky not going anywhere, but simply chopping and changing between different ideas—very small ideas, sometimes less than a bar long. Take the initial flourish or uprush. It's like a sharp intake of breath. Then a repetitive pounding in three times starts in the bass, which continues almost without a break. Right to the end of the movement and the end of the ballet's first half. That provides the relentless pulse, and over the top of that, a new shifting pattern of offbeat stomping chords. This music may sound extremely complicated, but its elements are actually exceedingly simple. 
And there's another crucial quality of this music, one that will remain with Stravinsky for the rest of his life. It's terseness. Nothing goes on longer than the bare minimum the music and the drama need. So, having set this wild dance of the earth in motion, the composer almost immediately pulls it back to sudden quietness again, and he begins a single, long build-up to the end. But perhaps the greatest coup in these closing bars of the first half of the writer's spring is the very last bar, for the music never arrives at a climax or a final chord. It simply grows and grows, and is then just snatched away as though those strange spring rituals with their swaying, stomping crowds of young men and women, and the very old woman who was the master of augury, and the oldest and wisest man who brings blessing upon the earth, had all just suddenly been shut off from our sight. As a result, in our imaginations, this intoxicated dancing goes on and on, long after the last notes have been snuffed into silence. 